Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the third in our 2020 U.S. Trend Report podcast series. I'm your host, Kim Bell, SVP and Head of Health and Benefits for NFP. And with me today is Kim Heald, who is our Head of Voluntary Benefits for us nationally here at NFP. Today, we're going to be taking a closer look at voluntary benefits, which is uh, Kim's love day in and day out. And we're going to start with some general questions, Kim. Great. Happy to be here. When you were working on your section of the trend report, what was the one thing that stood out for you? That's funny. Other than I had to write it all myself under a deadline. (laughs) Um, What what stood out to me was how to make a segment of benefits that have been around forever seem more relevant and interesting to the people who were going to read this report. Um, As you know, I look at these benefits as being a strategic component of most benefit programs and I'm sometimes alone in that position. So the challenge for me was how I was going to get everyone else to see the same thing. I know I wasn't going to change everyone's mind, but if I laid out the facts and told the story as I see it, then maybe some of the readers would start to see it my way. Oftentimes, clients are looking for the newest and sparkliest, shiniest thing to solve some of their problems. And when that happens, I'm like over here waving my arms and yelling, hey, these benefits may seem dull and old, but they really are helpful and serve an incredible purpose for your employees, I promise. My hope was that message would come off the page as it was read. I often feel it's like that in the benefits space. What what is old is new again. We you know, and it's the same in in the voluntary space. We used to call it worksite, and we call it voluntary. We're going to transition now to you know things that you're going to talk about later: supplemental health and lifestyle benefits. So it's funny how that how that trend seems to continue in the in the benefits world. Well, if you could pick one word to describe the state of employee benefits in this country, what would it be and why? Actually, I think the one word that I would use is confusing. It, it confusing. I don't know a single person in my personal life that has any idea about how their benefits work. And I would even argue that some of the people that work for this company don't understand how their benefits work either. I love to nerd out with my friends. So usually during their open enrollment, they'll call me and they'll say, hey, can you help me? And so usually kind of looks, we look at what plans they have, how to make their choices, you know, And at the end of the day, as we start to look at things like deductibles and coinsurance, everybody gets lost. And then the minute we start talking about HSA and HRA and FSA, forget it. Everybody's just more lost than they were before. Um, So even though these aren't new concepts, employees get lost every time. And then when we start talking about voluntary benefits like critical illness and accident, it's a whole new level of confusion. I had one friend ask me why she needed more car insurance when we got to her accident election. I was speechless. And then always with critical illness, it's like, doesn't my medical coverage cover that? People don't understand that even the best of medical plans don't cover everything. And that's why policies like critical illness and accident are so important. All of this says to me that whether employers believe this or not, their employees need some additional handholding when it comes to making these huge financial decisions. Robust education should be a battle cry and not an objection we have to handle and dance around. We have to get comfortable with the idea that our communication is best when it comes to employees and their benefits. I'll end the answer with the idea that a highly educated employee has a much better perception of their benefits package, whether it's good or bad, versus someone who doesn't understand their benefits at all. 
Those that don't understand and are left confused will likely always feel like their benefits aren't that great. And that really isn't good for anybody. I agree. I think the other interesting point is that, you know, we've, I think we've all looked at the changing world we're living in and understanding that so much more of what we do is going to be virtual. So it's going to be even more challenging when you're not, when employers are not able to sit in front of their employees. So I think it's, it's a good time um, for, you know, employers and, you know, advisors like us to get creative with ways that we can help educate those employees. Totally agree. A lot of data to digest in the trend report, but for an employee who may be looking for a specific direction on how to make a meaningful near-term impact with their benefits program, what one action would you recommend they take? Um, other than over-educate, I'd say look at voluntary benefits through a more strategic lens and whether or not they would buy these benefits for themselves. They should take themselves or they should give employees the choice to enroll or decline these benefits. Uh, giving the choice to employees doesn't really cost them anything, but the choice in and of itself tells employees that that their employees have their best interest in mind. Yeah, I think, I mean, voluntary benefits are a perfect way for an employer. Um, they're relatively inexpensive, but definitely give the employees both the perception and the reality that they can customize the benefits to their own needs. Um, you know, also gives them support in a time when, you know, they really need it, which is, you know, financial support, all of those kind of things. Okay, well, let's jump into some of the questions that are, you know, more specific to the report itself. What are the major challenges employers, I'm sorry, employees are facing today? And how has COVID-19 exacerbated these challenges? And how can vol voluntary benefits help? So multiple, multiple questions in a question. Yeah, so I got a lot to say on this one, Kim, sorry. <laughs> Um, employees, as you know, are seeing their employer-sponsored healthcare change, and for the and for most, the changes are financially punitive. Uh, the average individual deductible has increased by 100% in the past 10 years, and it sits at about an average of 1,600 bucks. 30% of us are saddled with at least a $2,000 deductible, and for most, it's difficult to pay without going into some kind of debt or even bankruptcy. Add this to the fact that benefits haven't gotten any less confusing. As an industry, we throw around terms as if the people we serve have any idea what we're talking about. I challenge anybody to ask 10 people on the same medical plan how their deductibles work, and I promise you, you'll get 10 different answers and a ton of eye rolls. So as I set the table pre-COVID, what we've seen over time is decreased coverage at a greater expense to the employee without any improved understanding of how it all works. Add the current COVID climate to the mix, and this scenario makes for the perfect storm. People aren't scared. People are scared, sorry. They may be losing their health care or maybe reducing their coverage because they can't afford what they've got. People are getting sick and accessing their health care, some for the first time, and are getting hit with medical expenses they simply cannot afford and don't understand. When I look at this scenario, I have an optimistic view that those of us who have voluntary benefits will be better off financially than those of us that don't. The supplemental health coverages like critical illness and hospital indemnity were built for this kind of chaos and that you spend a night or five in the hospital, chances are you're gonna blow through your deductible and out of pocket. Both of these policies will pay a member real money, money that they didn't have before they got sick. So I think about the terrible side effects of this disease taking shape in young people or people of all ages for that matter, having heart attacks and strokes. And if that happens, again, their out of pockets will be met. You'll never be able to convince me that a critical illness policy isn't the difference between financial hardship and financial freedom. Where else are you going to get $10,000 or $20,000 to cover your medical expenses? I mean, your credit cards, savings, you have to ask your family for help. 
BB policies, in my mind, are the counterpoint to going into HOC. And if we spend the time and effort it takes to educate employees on how this stuff works, you'll see that employees will feel better about it all, if only for a little bit. Yeah, I agree, Kim. I think in these times, the the financial challenges that employees at all levels, frankly, face is, I mean, you know, difficult to difficult to figure out solutions. And if these are the voluntary benefits are just a, a really cool way to be able to help. So I agree. I think education is key, just, you know, paying attention to the needs. So let's talk about, you know, those needs as they relate to generational, you know, customization. You note in the trend report that we have a multi-generational workforce, and I think every employer knows that. Each generation, Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, and Baby Boomers, has its own goals and needs, making a one-size-fits-all benefit increasingly ineffective. So the day and age of one plan, one-size-fits-all is gone. How are employers adapting, and what are the risks if they don't adapt? Well, some employers are adapting by taking themselves out of the transaction and allowing their employees to decide for themselves what coverage is best for them and their families. Once an employer stops making assumptions on what employees will or won't enroll in, then it's game on for developing benefit programs that cover all represented generations in any given workforce. Choice is an inexpensive luxury they can afford. They can offer to employees. The choice to say, yes, I want that benefit or no, that one doesn't work for me is invaluable. And by doing something as easy as offering choice, the employer accomplishes quite a lot. First, they end up creating a benefits package that is competitive and one that can be seen as a recruitment and retention tool. I know it seems toned up at this point to be talking about employee recruitment, but once COVID is in our rear view mirror, I, our economy is gonna blast off. And if the deciding factor for a recruit comes down to benefits, that benefit package better be incredible. Second, by giving employees more choices, they allow them to construct personalized benefit packages that if done right, will reduce financial exposure that exists in their core medical plans. And lastly, the choice in and of itself goes a long way with employees and their perceptions that their employer really cares for them and has their best interests in mind. Yeah, I think this is a little bit of a, of a double-edged sword for an employer because they do want to offer choice in most cases. They've done it that way in their medical plans for years. Um, but I think it does also make it much more difficult for them to educate when you have so many choices. So uh, I think I believe that there are challenges with it, but it's it's definitely the right thing to do and something that you know NFP can help them with. Okay, so let's drill into the various types of voluntary benefits. The trend report touches on two kinds of voluntary benefits, supplemental health and lifestyle. What specific benefits fall into these categories and why are they important to employees and employers? So the supplemental health bucket, um, or the way that we've kind of designed it here is that the supplemental health bucket includes plans that help med medical plans stand up. So think critical illness, hospital indemnity, accident, gap, uh, benefits in, kind of in that vein. Uh, these are supplemental health plans that supplement health plans. And as medical plans change and become less comprehensive, without these plans, many American employees will face financial hardship if and when they are diagnosed or injured. So no doubt we're gonna spend a ton of time on this bucket as we go through the podcast. Uh, the lifestyle benefits are a little bit different in that they're not medically related, um, but do have an impact on an employee's uh, kind of lifestyle. So think about uh, benefits like identity theft, like legal, pet insurance, et cetera. And if I may, I'm going to take about a 30-second uh, look at identity theft. 
and say that in light of the pandemic and the fact that there are so many people working from home in a less secure tech environment, it's easier than ever before for bad actors to get access to someone's personal information. And when that happens, we have an identity theft problem. It's unbelievable because every day I've been hearing about someone who's had an unemployment claim filed under their name and they happen to still be employed. And that's actually happened to some of us uh, that are close. That's a problem all its own. But the bigger issue is if this anonymous person has the information they need to file a U an unemployment claim, then they've got enough information to steal your identity. And as far as I understand it, it takes about 300 hours to remediate your ID. When you think about that and those 300 hours when they occur, it's usually during daylight or working hours. How productive can you be when you're fighting to get your identity back? So as an employer, I need my employees to do their jobs. And by offering something like this lifestyle benefit, like identity theft, an employer insulates themselves from the gigantic amounts of lost productivity. So I mean to go on and on about that, but it seems to be a pretty big hot button in light of COVID. I agree. I think I've heard of some of those claims myself. In fact, today I just got a notification from my identity theft um, provider indicating that someone had purchased a property. Now it does happen to be my husband and I, but what if I, you know, the first thing that jumped into my mind was what if someone were, you know, doing something like that with a title company or something with my identity. So I think those kind of benefits are critical to this, this day and age in the environment we're living in. Here's one startling stat from the report. 70% of Americans were unable to save $1,000 to pay for unplanned medical expenses. This reflects a level of financial instability that on one hand is a challenge, but on the other presents an opportunity. Why should employers care about the financial well-being of their employees? Wow. Uh, well, they should care because if an employee feels taken care of financially, their commitment, their focus, and their productivity will favor any given employer. The minute an employee feels stressed financially, those tangible things fly out the window. As I was doing some research earlier this year, I came upon some statistics that really spoke to me. First, the number one stress employees feel um, here in the States is financial, being about 42% of us feel that kind of stress. And if you, if you play that out for a minute, if someone has that kind of stress, what's the impact back to the employer? Well, all of the studies suggested that financial stress has a negative impact on someone's sleep, their relationships at work, the ability for them to finish their work, and ultimately it forces some of those people to look for a new job. So for employers to think that financial stress doesn't impact them, I think they're wrong. What I hear in all of that is lost productivity and ultimately turnover which as you know, can be incredibly expensive for any employer. I'm not saying employers are 100% responsible, but they can do things to help employees feel better about their finances that don't cost them anything. Simple additions can go a long way in helping employees feel more financially secure, I think. So what objections do you hear most often from employers when discussing voluntary benefits and how do you respond to those objections? Oh my gosh. Well, the one that I hear the most and like the least goes something like, uh, my employees don't need, want these benefits. I, and honestly, Kim, I have to literally stop myself from rolling my eyeballs to the back of my head because that one kills me the most. And the things that kind of run through my mind are like, how do you know that? Why do you think that? Do you think your employees understand how these benefits actually work? And those are the thoughts that run through my mind as I get ready to ha have a discussion to handle the objection. And the thing is, oftentimes I'm dealing with somebody that's a decision maker who's well-paid. Maybe that person has a ton of savings and maybe that person doesn't does or doesn't have an idea of how these benefits are supposed to work. 
And what I usually say to those people is you are not my target audience, right? And we have to respectfully disagree in that the people that are my target audience are your rank and file employees, right? They're the people that um, if they get sick or if they get injured would have a difficult time paying their medical pills, but it would also at the same time struggle to pay their household and their personal bills. You've done the best you can, but your medical plans have holes that employees simply can't cover. If your employees understood how these plans worked and were given the choice to elect or decline, I think you'd be surprised at how many people would actually enroll in these plans. That's usually, I'm, I'm kind of summarizing the big picture, but that's usually how the conversation goes. Ultimately, the, the message for me is the target audience for these benefits are the people that struggle the most trying to pay their out-of-pocket costs if and when they get sick. Unfortunately, that's the majority of American workforce, not just yours. Uh, other objections that I get are usually around timing and system implementation concerns, which could all be handled if we as consultants started the voluntary benefit conversations earlier on in the year. I think the carriers have made enormous strides in developing products that can be easily built onto most of the enrollment platforms and have simplified the management of these benefits once they become a part of the portfolio. We just have to do a better job at making sure our clients know these aren't your grandma's voluntary benefits anymore. And with 2021, you know, we've come a lot further with better benefits and a much simpler process to get them administered. In this day and age, Kim, I don't know too many employers offering benefit plans, and I mean medical benefit plans, that don't have some out-of-pocket associated with them. There may be a few still out there, and if there are, congratulations. And um, I mean, that's wonderful. Uh, but I think, you know, more and more employers have gone to more significant deductibles, if not high deductible health plans with significant out-of-pockets. And, you know, it's just very... These, the time for considering these type, type of benefits is critical. Okay, Kim, so what about cost? We hear so much about how healthcare and benefit costs are skyrocketing. How can employers and employees afford voluntary benefits in addition to an ongoing increase in their traditional benefit programs? Well, I think the question really is how can they not? As medical plan premiums skyrocket, employers are having to make major changes to their plan designs, and that doesn't bode well for employees usually. I mean, in order to curve costs, employers are being forced to increase deductibles and out-of-pockets, which means employees are more financially exposed than they ever were before. With the vast majority of Americans without savings, most won't be able to pay medical bills associated with major illnesses or injuries without leaning on supplemental health plans like accident and critical illness. One of your last questions referenced the statistic about 70% of Americans having less than $1,000 in savings. What, it did, what you didn't say is that 45% of people have no savings at all. And no matter how much money you make or people make here in America, about 30% of the people who make more than $100,000 a year are living paycheck to paycheck. So to me, it seems almost criminal to increase deductibles and out-of-pockets without giving employees access to supplemental health plans. If you are living paycheck to paycheck, how else are you going to cover major medical bills if you don't have access to these benefits and you don't have savings? Again, should American employees have to go into credit card debt or ask their families to help to pay off medical bills? I just don't think that should happen when there's simple solution to prevent it, or at least to minimize it. The reality is, in light of increasing competition in the market, the supplemental health plans are way more comprehensive in that they cover so much more, while at the same time, they become incredibly affordable. It used to be employees would shell out $30 a month for a single coverage on an accident plan. 
And today that same amount could cover that same person's entire family. Financial strain, unfortunately, is a part of the American healthcare system today, and it doesn't have to be that way if employees have access to and understand how supplemental health plans work for them. Yeah, I think that also the misnomer a bit is that, you know, we're under financial strain now, and we haven't been under financial strain previous to COVID, but the reality is employees have been under financial financial stress for years um, with the increasing contributions and the benefit plan, you know, the benefit changes that, you know, require more out of pocket for them. So again, I think all, all paths lead to solutions like voluntary benefits. Well, walk me through a scenario involving supplemental health benefits. What's the potential exposure for an employee and how do voluntary benefits help them mitigate that risk? See, this is the part of the podcast that I wish I had a whiteboard. So try to follow me here for a second. <laughs> Assume for a moment an employee is enrolled in a high deductible health plan that has a $2,000 deductible with a $6,000 out of pocket. If we believe the statistic that 70% of us don't have $1,000 in savings, right away you can see that we've got a mathematical problem brewing. Assume then that this employee is diagnosed with cancer. And keep in mind, Kim, that 60% of cancer patients will pay at least $5,000 out of pocket, while 20% will pay more than $20,000 out of pocket. And they're paying for things that are not covered by medical insurance, no matter how good their medical insurance is. So with, with that said, we know that a cancer diagnosis can be incredibly expensive. And so it stands to reason that hitting a $6,000 out of pocket is a real concern. So if the employee has zero in savings, how will they be expected to pay their $6,000 out of pocket? Now, if you offer employees access to an affordable critical illness plan and you explain to them that a $10,000 policy is supposed to work or how it's supposed to work, suddenly the math isn't as big a problem as it used to be. Although the policy on average for older people can cost about $20 to $30 a month, it will more than cover their out-of-pocket costs and leave them extra to pay the bills that don't stop coming. I do wanna take the time to call out some of the younger people that may be listening to this podcast. And you have to know that cancer doesn't discriminate by age or gender. And so just because you're 25 and newly employed doesn't mean you can't suffer a diagnosis. And so to these young people, I say, the cost of a $20,000 critical illness benefit will cost you less, most likely than a grande latte and a baking good at Starbucks. So don't ignore these benefits if offered, they could be a financial lifesaver for you as well. And at the end of the day, these policies were created to insulate patients, no matter their age or gender and economic status from the mounting cost of major illnesses like cancer. And no one should have to worry about financial stress while going through the treatments. And by adding this kind of policy, we have an opportunity to help employees reduce their financial exposure and give them the headspace they need to focus on their treatment and getting healthy. Thank, thank you, Kim. The, I Hopefully everybody was able to follow along with the math. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, frankly, a perfect example of, um, you know, one of these policies at work, um, you know, purchased it because I'm on a high deductible health plan. Um, I'm fortunate not to, you know, perhaps have an issue with, you know, having a few dollars in my savings, but it was nice when my husband was um, diagnosed with a, a, ma a malignancy on his arm and we were able to, you know, receive a benefit from our critical illness policy. So these are, you know, these are everyday benefits for people and these kind of, as you're saying, um, you know, things like cancer diagnosis, they don't, they don't discriminate. 
Okay, so for an employer that buys into the concept of voluntary benefits, what are some of the best practices for implementation to ensure that employees understand what's available and the benefit benefits of each offering? Oh my gosh, education, education, education. <clears throat> you know, unfortunately, these benefits don't enroll themselves. So it's imperative that an effective communication education plan is developed and used. It isn't okay for someone to think that accident insurance is car insurance. And the only way to get around that is by making sure we create a plan that educates employees at their level. Uh, from there, the enrollment process has to be flipped on its head. Since supplemental health benefits supplement an employee's health benefits, it's important that the employees see these benefits as an integral part of their benefits package. They won't see it that way if these benefits are on the last page of their benefit booklet, backed by the notices. They won't see it that way if the description of the benefits is a vague sentence or two. And they won't see it that way if it's the bottom of their um, enrollment sequence in their enrollment system. It, all of this leads to minimal enrollment, which then perpetuates the contempt that employers have had for these benefits for so long. These tweaks aren't rocket science. They're simple maneuvers designed to bring awareness to these plans in a meaningful way that not only makes an employer look good, but most importantly helps to insulate employees and their families from financial strain caused by less rich medical plans and major medical diagnoses. All right. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully, as you're mentioning, I mean, some of these, you know, this education for employers and some of these simple maneuvers will help employers see the value in these benefits and, you know, share some best practices with how to how to implement, how to educate. And, you know, that's what we're here for. So thank you very much for joining me today, Kim, for the podcast. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I always love doing this stuff. <laughs> <laughs>